Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be here uh, with you today. Another beautiful week as we continue into the fall season. The leaves are starting to change, and this is just a beautiful time of year. I was out for a walk yesterday, and I noticed that some of the trees in our development have started to look like pumpkins. And I uh, love that. The bright orange and yellows at the top of the trees, just uh, God's design, uh, sometimes just leaves us breathtaking, does it not? We continue uh, today in our study through the Gospel of Mark, and in many ways, last week, HUD set us up perfectly as he asked the question, if you remember, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to HUD. He asked that question that Jesus asks in the Gospel of Luke, where is your faith? And the gospel writers, throughout all of the different gospels in the New Testament, they make efforts to record more questions from Jesus than answers that Jesus gave. You remember one of the statistics that was brought up last week is that Jesus asked over 300 questions in each of the gospels as you combine them. And perhaps a question that we might think about today Why are questions so important? What does a question accomplish that an answer often cannot provide? Now, the other day I had the opportunity at our house to uh, take one of our children, or two of our children actually, down to the bus stop. And these two particular children that were in the vehicle with me are big-time question askers. And so I thought to myself, children often are very curious and ask a lot of questions. And I thought to myself, do I really want my time down to this bus stop and waiting at the bus stop to be consumed with questions from children? Or, or could I choose a better way? And I chose the better way, I think. At least it worked. And I think I might try it again in the future. I decided that this time around, I was going to put the shoe on the other foot and that I was going to get into the vehicle loaded with questions for the child in the back seat. And so one of the children decided that he was going to walk down to the bus stop. Maybe he knew what was coming. He might have uh, intuitively knew what was coming. The other child naively slipped into the back seat, having no idea the barrage that was about to come upon him. And so as soon as he slipped in the back seat, before he could even get a word out of his mouth, I just started in with questions. One after the next, after the next, after then we drove down to the bus stop, and he would answer, and we were having a grand old time. And I remember on the way back home, uh, I, I drove back, kids got on the bus, drove back home, and, and Sheila got in the car, and we headed off to our next location, and I said, hey, I did something fun today. <laughs> I said, instead of... Instead of this child asking me all the questions, I decided I was going to ask him all the questions. I wonder how he felt. I wonder what that was like. And Sheila looked at me and she said, I bet he felt like he was really seen and understood. And I was like, wow, isn't that the power of a good question? Ask at the right time, in the right situation. Jesus asks questions because the right questions helps other people understand that they are seen 
And as the God who is with us, Jesus desires for us to understand that He is not with us in a way that is aloof. John chapter 2 testifies to this. Jesus would not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. One of the ways we know that Jesus knew all people is by the questions that He asks. Questions help us to remember, to reflect, and even rehearse that we are not alone in this world. That God is with us, and that God is present with us as one who sees, as one who hears, and as one who cares deeply about our lives and our experiences in this world. And as we continue through Mark, what a remarkable, encouraging, and uplifting truth and reality for a persecuted church living under the oppressive yoke of the Roman Empire. To know that there is a God who is with them, that there is a God who knows them, who truly sees and understands. What an empowering and motivating and life-giving reality for a church an early church that was facing the fatigue and weariness of fracture and division as law-centered influences like Judaism continued to have effect on these adolescent Christian communities. And what wonderfully consistent and comforting good news for the church in the world today. We as a church that face our own challenges and our own struggles fractures and divisions as the world impinges and encroaches on the better way that we've been given in Christ. And so today in the portion of Mark that we'll be studying, we're going to examine five revealing questions that Jesus asked during his ministry. These are important, decisive questions that get to the heart of the way that we live and move as individuals and churches alive in the world today. Our original author of the gospel intended that these questions would be examined through a corporate lens. If we remember long ago before the invention of the printing press, when these letters were delivered to the earliest churches, they were read out loud in Christian communities as followers of the way gathered together and were being formed as the early church. And whether we read and examine these questions through corporate or individualized lenses, what I anticipate that we will discover is that Jesus knows us and he sees us for who we truly are. He cares for us and he desires for our good. And through his questions, Jesus moves us to a place where we know, see, understand, and relate to Jesus for who he truly is. And we're going to see that in our text today. He does not want us to miss out on the fact that he is with us with purpose and effect. And that because of his purposeful and effective presence, we have everything we need to live, believe, see, understand, and proclaim the good news to the rest of the world today. And those of us who already believe this, we need to be reminded and those of, those of us in our presence who have not yet believed this, well, we need to hear the good news of Jesus, God with us. Mark chapter 8 is where we begin today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 30. So if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to that portion of your text, Mark chapter 8, 
verses 1 to 30. We're going to start with the first 10 verses. And before we read, let's pray and ask God to help in our time of study. Father, what a beautiful morning you've given us. The sunrise, evidence of your beauty. A reminder that you paint your love in brushstrokes over the tapestries of our lives. And you bring us together, you call us together to this place. It's, it's a place where we can be refreshed, Lord. It's a place where we can be renewed. It's a place where we can be lifted up. It's Christian community. It's honoring to you. It's a place where we can lift your name high and worship you with other believers for the God that you are. Glorious, reigning high above us, yet so intimately involved in every one of our lives. And, and Lord, this is fun. This, this part is fun. We get to gather around your life-giving word as a community and we know because of the promises that it holds that you are using it with power and effect to change us to form us into something beautiful namely the image of your son jesus and lord we recognize as we say that it's fun in the same breath lord we recognize that it's also hard yes it's hard to be shaped and molded it's hard to be changed to live counterculturally, to walk in the better way in this world. But God, how delightful to know that you are with us to help us do it, that you do not leave us alone, that you go where we go, and that you empower us. And so, Lord, we ask today as we turn to your word that you'd use it to change us, transform us, Mold us into the image of Jesus. Help us to leave here as a changed people, a, a people encouraged, a people lifted up, a people who live as if we know we are known, loved, and seen by the God who created everything in this world. What a glorious reality that we get to experience. Father, be with us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? That was their question. Jesus responds with his own. And he asks them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, these also should be set before them, and they ate and were 
satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Damanutha. So Mark's gospel includes two separate miracles of these sorts of feedings. Jesus miraculously feeding large groups of people. And these miracles are here to help us realize a number of realities that were related to both the person and the work of Jesus. And and I just want to make five observations together today in these first ten verses. And each of these observations are rehearsing, are never changing, and ever abundantly supplying God. And the first is this. Jesus is giving bread from heaven. The same God who had provided for the Israelites in the wilderness is again with the Israelites now. And once again, he is giving them, supplying for them bread in a supernatural way. In a way that was completely uncommon for the day. A second observation is this. The same God who had called the people in the book of Exodus up to the mountain and invited them to participate in the right-making work that he was doing in the world is again present now with the people and he's calling his disciples in these verses to use their hands and feet to participate with him in ministry. We've, We've said this before. Jesus, as God, could have showed up and done all of this on his own power, on his own strength, by himself. And he would have been just as, if not so much more effective as God, but he did not choose to do it that way. He used others. He invited the participation of others with him in ministry. And again, this is the same God who in the book of Exodus brought water from a rock, a dry and desolate object. Did you catch that phrase here in the first ten verses? The question the disciples asked, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Once again, Jesus is present. He's providing for his people in a desolate land. And verses 1 to 4, they contrast the difference between what Jesus sees and what his disciples see. Jesus, he looks out on the crowd seeing the people and he recognizes their condition. He sees their need. While his disciples are quick to recognize what? What do his disciples recognize? Yeah, limitation. Limitation. Lack. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Jesus responds to their desperate question with a question that should have taken their minds back to just a few chapters before, right? It's just a chapter or so before where Jesus is feeding 5,000 people. Do you remember how many loaves they had when he fed 5,000? Anybody remember how many loaves? Five. Five loaves to feed 5,000 people. Just a few events before this. And here we are now, and there's only 4,000 people present. Now, granted, 
some of the Gospels infer that these 4,000 were all men. So maybe we need a little, little bit more <laughs> to feed them. But we have seven loaves and a thousand less people. What should have the disciples been saying? Woo, I wonder how much leftovers we're going to have this time around. That's not where they go. It's amazing. These testimonies are here to remind us that when Jesus is present as he is, we have all that we need for the work that he has given us to do and for the people he has called us to care for, even when the numbers don't add up. That doesn't make sense on paper. Jesus loves to operate in those spaces. Loves it. And friends, as disciples, we are quick to forget. We all need these continual reminders and rehearsals. And Jesus knew this. And so that's why you see many of the same miracles or similar miracles over and over again. Because we need to be continually reminded that this is what our God is able to do. To take what appears to be very little and to bring much from it. And then a final observation. As we minister to the needs of the people, relying on the provision that we've been given by Jesus, the results can and should include abundance and satisfaction. Isn't that incredible? That's what it says in the first ten verses. Again, they ate and they were all what? Satisfied satisfied and there were leftovers seven loaves of bread 4,000 people a few small fishes all of them eat all of them were satisfied in God's economy there is enough for everyone he is able to supply as we look to Jesus depending and relying on him for our daily provision whether that be our strength whether that be energy, whether that be material provision, whether it be emotional or spiritual provision, we can trust that He is faithful to supply and provide us with everything that we need to do what He's called us. And so we have all of these miracles. Remember, we said Mark is a very quick-hitting gospel. There's miracle after miracle, all these things going on. There's been miraculous feedings. There's been healings. There's countless individuals. Lives have been changed. He's cast out demons. He's calmed the winds and the waves. And still, what we're going to discover as we continue through the text today is that there were still many looking for signs. How many signs did they need? The next two questions then are very closely related. One is aimed at the Pharisees and the other grouping of questions is pointed at his disciples. And we want to address the question that he asked to the Pharisees first. Look at verses 11 to 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to make it a habit of arguing with Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Have you ever felt that there's somebody, or maybe you just didn't felt, maybe this is reality in your life, that there's somebody there that's just demanding something from you over and over and over again, and you consistently supply it, you consistently give it, and it's never enough. Never enough. Jesus is disturbed in this text by the behavior of the Pharisees. We see that when he sighs deeply. They are argumentative. They're seeking to disrupt his ministry. They have always been interrogative. Nothing that he does is enough. Any sign that he could have given would not have been enough. They would have always demanded more. And when he would have given more, they would have continued to misinterpret, mischaracterize, and misrepresent what he was doing. They did not believe. They did not believe. Friends, sometimes there will be those in our lives who are like the Pharisees. Sometimes there will be those in our lives who are unwilling to recognize or respond to Jesus' provisions as adequate to answer questions or resolve concerns that they have. This group of people is exhaustive and exhausting, individually and corporately. Jesus, in the text here, he moves on. That's tough. He asks a question to them to get to the heart of where they're truly at and knowing that there is nothing that he could do that could satisfy what they were looking for, he moves on. There are some who are both inside and outside of the church who will be unwilling to listen, to see, to understand, or to respond appropriately to Jesus' supply. The person he is, the work that he has done, and the life that he has offered. And when people are unwilling to accept the life that Jesus offers and the work that he has done or is currently doing when they are argumentative, disruptive, and constantly attempting to stir things up, there are times and seasons when Jesus simply says no and moves on. There's a lesson here, friends. Demanding Jesus, or his disciples for that matter, to respond to what we want, to our demands, to answer all of our questions, to put our discontented minds and spirits at ease in order so that we can justify ourselves or our positions or our behaviors. It's dangerous grounds for any of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps the Pharisees were willing to accept Jesus and his followers, but they were only willing to do so if Jesus and his disciples followed in their traditions, in their teachings, in their training, and encouraged others to follow in their incomplete and mischaracterized interpretations of the law. Friends, Jesus was not willing to play their game. 
And as he moves on, it's interesting to take inventory of the discussion that happens next, right? He continues, now we're on a boat, and once again on this boat, bread is the topic. This time Jesus speaks to his disciples. Listen to what he says, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. You notice a theme in Mark's gospel? This is bread. People like to eat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Strong words from Jesus. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, important to see both here, the leaven of Herod. And they began, isn't this great? They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Where were their minds? Just give them lunch, Jesus, then they'll be ready to listen. So leavening agents, when we see that word leaven, that's kind of a big word. We might not understand what that means. Leavening agents take something that should be flat, like a simple loaf of bread, and they fill it up. Some of us that make bread know that, right? The right kind of leaven can be good. For instance, speaking of Jesus, he's the bread of life. He fills up the requirements and demands of the law as they were intended to be followed. But not so with both the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Roman or any other government or political system. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says the leaven of Herod. He's talking about the Roman government. Neither is adequate, neither is life-giving, and none of them promote a way that is congruent with the better way that is found in Christ Jesus. When he's talking about the Pharisees, he's talking about the teaching or instruction that puffs up either the teacher or the learner. This is what leaven does to bread. There is teaching out there, and Paul talks about this in the New Testament. There is knowledge that we seek that is only good for puffing ourselves up, whether we are the teacher or whether we are the learner. Jesus says, beware. Watch out for the bread of law-based religious systems or political systems. These breads provoke pride, arrogance. They lead to contention, division. This kind of bread causes us to become hardened against other people. We see this with the Pharisees in the New Testament. To forget, to lose our sight and our hearing in this world. In the pursuit of our knowledge and insight related to things which we have little or no control over, we lose perception of that which matters most. The bread that Jesus provides through His Word, the habits that follow in prayer and Christian fellowship, they're enough to sustain us, to teach us, and to help us live rightly in this world. And yet, we are still sometimes influenced by the bread, by the leaven that causes anxiety, worry, fret, catastrophizing, dread. The bread that leads us towards forgetfulness related to the faithfulness of God. It was a problem of the Pharisees. It was a problem of the disciples. And I loved Hud's challenge last week. In fact, one of our elders Thursday night said they took him up on his challenge and it was really beneficial. Turn off 
the news. Turn it off. I told a friend not long ago, they called me on the phone, they were ruminating over all these terrible things going on in the world, and I said, just turn off the news. Just turn it off. I said, in fact, why don't you start something a little bit different in your practice and habits of of what's going on in the world. Why don't you start to read your news? And when you read it, look out for adjectives. News isn't really supposed to have adjectives in it. And when you read it, make sure you read from different outlets. The same story. Be discerning. Don't listen. Read. Sheila and I a few years ago now, challenged ourselves in that way. And we, we really aren't people that watch the news. We don't care to watch. We don't care to listen. The things that it does to our hearts and our minds, it's not helpful. It's not edifying. It's not good for the building up of the body of Christ. And what a good challenge from HUD last week, and I would encourage all of us to practice turning off the news. Jesus, in verse 17, is aware that they don't have bread. They're worried about that still. He's aware. I love Jesus' response. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? It's not about the bread. As it is. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And he said, seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, Do you not understand? There was a scene in the movie years ago. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I don't even remember where it comes from, but I feel like my mom said that to me over and over again growing up. (laughs) And my response could always be a hearty, nope, nope, nope. So much bread in this part of Mark. Chapter 7, you remember chapter 7 just a few weeks ago, the Syrophoenician woman? Do you remember her conversation with Jesus? And she said, even the children, eat the, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Talking about bread. She knew Jesus' bread could heal her daughter. And then on our, in our discussion guides or note guides for this week, it's in a yellow sheet in your weekly, there are a number of prophecies that we listed and in instances uh, identifying one of the major themes in Mark's gospel, and that is being alive without understanding. What a terrible place to be. In some places in the New Testament, it describes it as walking in darkness. Remember that? Isaiah. John, this is a theme. Disciples without understanding as well. And when we are alive without understanding, we cannot see. We are blind to the realities and the truth of Christ. Our Christ, 
God with us. We are in danger of missing the very power and presence of God in our midst. Sometimes, friends, we just need to be reminded so that we can be aware that He's here, that He's working right now. Right now. Even as we sit here today, right here in this sanctuary, God is alive, He's active, He's working, He's not idle. He does not faint, He does not grow weary. We do, He does not. What a glorious truth. Oh, to be alive with vision in this world. Vision. So look at where Jesus moves his disciples next. They're alive without perception. They're alive without vision. They're alive without understanding. So he's going to show them everything they're missing. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some of the people brought to him a blind man. Hmm. And begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men. I wonder who he's talking about. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. Five connections here or insights related to this healing. First, it is significant for us to understand and observe the location. This healing takes place in Bethsaida. It takes place after these words were spoken to the people of Bethsaida in Matthew 11. Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This healing is testimony to Jesus' grace, his mercy, his coming back to a region that had previously rejected and spurned his ministry and giving those within the region of Bethsaida yet another opportunity to see, to hear, to understand, to repent. A second connection to this healing is it's involved with earlier prophecy in the Old Testament related to the Christ. There are three passages in this section of your discussion and note guide this week that give further clarity into the promise of Messiah and the power that he was going to have to give sight to the blind. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy when he heals the blind man. A third observation is that this healing is closely connected to the healing of the deaf and mute man in chapter 7, Verses 31 to 36. And it's very interesting that both of these miracles involve Jesus' intentional, purposeful touch along with the use of his own saliva. Someone's going, yeah. Some of us are seeing way too much saliva in our homes right now, right? Coming out of places where saliva is not supposed to be coming out of. Go blow your nose. How many times are you saying that these days? We say that a lot. Especially to one of our kids. Go blow your nose. Ugh. We see that saliva and we think, really, Jesus? Spit? Some scholars 
have discussed the significance of Jesus using saliva as it being a demonstration of the restorative and creative power that comes forth from the mouth of God. And this indeed would correlate with testimony from both Genesis and Revelation. What do we see in Genesis? God speaks and life comes into existence. What do we see in Revelation? God speaks and there's healing and restoration. A fourth observation, this healing, like the healing of the deaf mute man, is another healing that is only recorded in Mark's gospel and it is the only healing in Mark's gospel that is not instantaneous. In other words, all of us, we all know that Jesus could have come up to this man, licked his fingers or spit on his eyes or whatever he did, and he could have instantaneously been healed. But that is not how Jesus chose to do this healing. This is a gradual healing, and it's purposeful. Because like most of Jesus' earthly ministry, this miracle is meant to communicate something greater than just the restoration of a person's sight. Do you see anything? Jesus asked this question. And think about who is present. It's not just the man who is blind that is present when he asked this question. Who else is with him? His disciples. It's a question that's intended for both parties. And how the blind man responds gives us insight to how the disciples had been responding up to that point to the ministry of Jesus. Partially regaining his sight, look what he says in verse 24. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Have you ever seen trees walking before? If you raise your hand, we're going to bring you up here right now for testimony. (laughs) Just in the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Or I see some of our teenagers over there, they're laughing because they've seen it in one of the Marvel movies. Uh, Groot, he's like a a tree walking, right? Um, Our older populations might not understand that reference, but our younger ones do. Trees walking. Jesus had touched this man. He had started to perceive, to visually recognize something, but did not yet understand what he was seeing. He was different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees turned Jesus away. They rejected and they despised Jesus. The blind man is illustrating the very habit that Jesus desires from his true followers. In the original text, the original language here, it actually uh, says that this man was, gaze, was intently gazing, intently gazing at Jesus. Even though he had not yet been fully healed yet, he continued to intently gaze at Jesus. And friends, even when we are without understanding, when we cannot clearly see, oh, how important to continue to intently fix our eyes on Jesus, to walk by faith, And to believe that as He works in and through us, He will provide clarity of sight. And like it happened for this man, for some of us it might come gradually. 
Maybe for some of us over a lifetime, perhaps others, it comes quickly, days, months, years. But it is Christ alone who's able to restore our sight fully, to increase our perception, to give us knowledge, insight, and wisdom that leads to abundant life. The Pharisees demanded a sign. The signs were all around and all about them, and they were blind without seeing, without understanding. They couldn't recognize Christ in their midst. So held in bondage by their commitment to certainty were they that they had little clarity on the things that truly mattered. They just couldn't see what really mattered. And because they refused to look unto Jesus, even when they could not clearly understand or perceive Him, they ended up crucifying their Messiah, our Christ, the Anointed One. The final connection or insight from this healing for us to see is that this man fixed his gaze intently on Jesus and that Jesus was faithful to fully restore his vision so that he could see everything clearly. Everything. And not only could this man see clearly now, but Jesus' disciples were also beginning to now clearly see Jesus for who he truly is. And friends, understanding and seeing Jesus for who He really is, it's something that causes faith, hope, and love to bloom and to blossom within us. It's something that motivates us, that moves us to proclaim the grace and the truth and the life and the hope and the goodness of Christ to any who will listen. And this is amazing because we're moving to what is the central verse in the Gospel of Mark here in these final three verses. Watch how Jesus moves His disciples from cloudy to clear, from foggy perception to knowledge of crystal clarity, from speculation regarding who He might be to certainty that He is the one who matters the most. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And along the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others say, one of the prophets. 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. When Sheila and I started dating, this was a long time ago now, uh, it was very interesting. We had met at summer camp, and we were camp counselors. And we began this relationship, and in the course of our relationship, we had a DTR. Anybody know what a DTR is? Some people know. Some people are like, oh yeah, I had to have that. I had that too. DTR stands for defining the relationship. At some point, you have to do it, right? You got to know who you are to one another, right? So I thought I had clearly done this. I had set this thing up perfectly. We went for a walk one night. We we got to a little pavilion. We sat down. I said, hey, I want to be your boyfriend. I want you to be my girlfriend. We're going to have this relationship. Want to date, all this stuff. And, and so I left for school. She stayed down here in Lancaster. I left and headed back to Scranton to school with this knowledge in my heart that I had a girlfriend. 
And somewhere along the line, I had not clearly communicated what my intentions were because I don't think she had that same clarity that I had. So as I was in school and I was like, yeah, I got a girlfriend. I'm telling everybody about my girlfriend, telling everybody about Sheila. This this girl I met at Black Rock. It was all, man, it was was like God just dropped her right in my lap and the sun was just always behind her countenance and like all this stuff, you know. And I'm going on and on and on. And one night, and just amazing things happened during this time. We had this long-distance relationship for like a year and I had a card Back then, you had to have calling cards for long distance. You remember when you had to have calling cards for long distance and you would get a certain number of minutes? Somewhere along the line, uh, they lost track of my minutes. I never had to pay for them. I don't know. I got all these. I got hundreds and hundreds of free minutes. Uh, we just talked and talked and talked, and I never got a bill. Some Chris Lenhart somewhere in the world probably got a bill, and I don't know. It was probably for a lot of money. But we were talking, and, and, and one night... She says to me, she says, what do you call me? And I'm like, I call you Sheila. <laughs> That's your name. <laughs> I call you your name. No, 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 no. She's like, I, I know, I know. But what do you say? Who, who do you say I am when your friends are around? <laughs> I'm like, Sheila? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I didn't know what she was getting at. No, no, no. She's like, oh, I guess. She's like, no, but like, do you, she has finally said it. Do you call me your girlfriend? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I call you my girlfriend. You're, you're my girlfriend. Absolutely, yes, we're, we're dating. I, I absolutely see you that way. And it just became a huge uh, point of comfort for you, I think, babe. That, that, that was... That was who you were to me, right? We finally knew that, and, and that was good. It was good for both of us, because I needed that, that reassurance as well, that she saw me that way, too. And it's this proclamation in Mark that is the center of Mark's gospel. The clarity of the disciples finally coming to terms in some way, now we know they didn't fully grasp this, but they were coming to terms in some way with who Jesus is. You are the Christ. And here we are. 25 miles from Herod's house is where this proclamation took place. 25 miles from Herod's house. The place where many people Many Roman citizens would have gone to audibly proclaim and submit to the lordship of Caesar. Here, in this space, Jesus' disciples are beginning to see, to hear, to know, and to understand Jesus for who he really is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as this confession actually concludes the first half of Mark's gospel, It wraps it up. The second half of Mark's gospel is going to develop and bear out both the commitment and the consequence of such a powerful, truth-filled, and life-giving confession. A confession like this comes with consequence and it comes with commitment. Recognizing Jesus as Lord is filled with implications for the disciple of Jesus. Implications that are going to determine how we live faithfully in the world that God has planted us in. 
And thankfully, as we continue to explore the gospel witness, we will find a faithful example and testimony in Jesus' own life. And so as we conclude today, the right question asked at the right time has a powerful, unique way to make others feel as though they're seen, known, and loved, both by others and by God. The right question asked at the right time can be used of God to restore, to repair, to reconcile, even redeem those without sight, without faith, and without hope. Those who are alive in this world without understanding. And as we observe today, the right question asked at the right time can be used of God to move someone to a hope-filled proclamation, a confession that leads to abundance and eternal life. Friends, I'd ask us today, what are the questions we're asking? Team, would you come as we pray? Father, thank you for your word again, for its truth, for its power, and its effect. Lord, we thank you that you do know us. You know us perfectly. You see through all of the ways we try to hide. You break down our walls you see behind the fences we put up. You know us, and that is a good thing. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom to help others know that they are known, that they are seen, that they are loved, not only by us, but much more importantly, by you, by the God who created this world, that there is a desire in your heart that none should perish. And Lord, we want to ask the questions that might lead people to consider the power of that reality that we can be known and loved by the creator of this world in a way that leads to our eternal abundance and satisfaction. Help us to be able to deliver that good news in life-changing ways this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.